Jason. Hey, Dan. How are you doing? I'm fantastic. How are you? Pretty good. I um. Fire. Oh, stop it. Everything's amazing. <laughs> Everything. It's Austin, Texas. The weather's beautiful. What can what I have to complain about? What does beautiful weather weather in Austin, Texas mean? Uh, it means it's like 72 degrees and sunny uh, mm. and low humidity. So it's the same in Los Gatos, California. Yeah, but you get it all year round. We get it for like two weeks. Mm. So it's a big thing. I mean, I'd move out there, but you know, it's expensive. Actually, I think we're catching up to where you guys are. Might be true. Yeah. I mean, uh, Austin is an expensive place to live. It is. I mean, when I moved here, let me think, 10, yeah, almost 11 years ago. It was different. I mean, it wasn't cheap, but it wasn't what it is now. Yeah, but that's great because you moved there early. Yeah. 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 I mean, back when I moved to the Bay Area in 1908, <laughs> we, we, uh, you know, we were able to, you know, lock down things pretty well. I mean, it was incredible after the fire. I mean. <laughs> right. Yeah, there was. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's how you became a land baron. It's God, I wish. You know. Yeah, I took all my proceeds from the silver mines in Nevada, <laughs> right. rolled it right into right, right. buying entire hills in the San Francisco. Mm-hmm. You know, you were mm-hmm. one of the people that built that bridge, and then now yeah. look at you. Yeah, I know. I know. Now I'm working on the internet. <laughs> that's, that's right. You type type on a computer all day. That's true. That's real adversity right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so we've Ima- got a imagine, bunch. Imagine, imagine having a conversation. <laughs> no, imagine having a conversation <laughs> with one of your ancestors about uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. I don't want to talk to my ancestors. <laughs> really? Yeah, really. Uh, genuinely. Okay, there. Move on. <laughs> let them chill out. Whatever they're doing, they're they're. You know, <laughs> just let them be. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. No shrines for Dan. <laughs> so. We got some good stories though, uh, and this first one I could I could spend the whole hour on this story, just this one story. Really? Yeah, on this first one, um, this one is about FedEx. So the title of this thing is FedEx S and P Global discuss cloud edge use cases. Mm, cloud okay. edge use cases, Jason, and um, so this is a combination. This is a cross tier combination of edge computing cloud computing fog computing fog computing okay yeah. fog so computing fog wh- computing is a uh, i like the way you say that <laughs> fog computing is a garbage marketing term that okay came i never with. heard that it one really, before what is that supposed really? to be yes um <clears throat> it was uh it was like a pre-edge marketing term okay so somebody uh, and I, I apologize if somebody's listening, but it was a fucking dumb idea. Um, <laughs> somebody, at, I think it was at Cisco, uh, but somebody at Cisco thought that the thing that comes next after a cloud is fog. <laughs> so that you'd have like the cloud, which are these big, right. you know, beautiful, you know, and they'll, they'll, they gave it like cloud names. And then yeah. as you get closer to shore, you have the fog oh. sort of in, you know. And then and the, so, I guess you get what after that, the mist. And then the yeah, and there was even this fog computing <laughs> consortium and all sorts of stuff. And we were supposed to, in a previous life, supposed to join it sort of here and there. And and then I would always, um, I would always be, uh, you know, like what's next, marine layer computing. 
This is article goes be, on. Is to, there going to be smog computing? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Like, like, uh, but the, uh, the inevitable future is smog computing. Yeah, it sounds yeah. terrible. <laughs> Uh, it, the, the article says the pandemic exacerbated many of the problems found with traditional infrastructure. I, I think the pandemic exacerbated all problems. Um, you would have thought, though, that that the more people that you have working remotely, the better this would be for all kinds of edge computing, cloud computing, VOG computing. Um, is that is that true? Does the industry reflect that? Uh, you know, not not necessarily. I mean, there ends up being uh, a couple, you know, different different ways that one can can look at it, right? Uh, and um, you know, meaning as I think as we've talked about before, uh, you know, when you sort of look at the ways that you can categorize the spaces and think about it, um, you know, we at least have, you know, the concepts of last last mile networks, which tend to be wireless, which then go and eventually connect to a thing called the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there does always seem to be a device that connects to a wireless network that then connects to a wired network. Like that's that's pretty consistent. Yeah. Even in most uh, people's houses, that's pretty consistent. Yeah. And that, that seems to be. And, and people always prefer, um, like, there's there's clearly you know preferences around you know devices uh, mm-hmm. and um, you know what those look and feel like and sure. if people have a choice between something that's wireless or cordless they'll pick cordless um, you know time and time again and um, and uh, you know so there's always sort of this you know device talks to um, a wireless network talks to a wired network and then. Right. In a lot of ways, cloud is just a name for the embedded application environment in the internet, and edge is supposed to be a name for the embedded application environment inside of a um, mobile network. Right. And um, so it's sort of this idea that a device talks to, an edge talks to uh, the cloud, uh, and uh, that is a pretty straightforward like abstraction, you know, if you will, and then, you know, as humans, we tend to start messing it up when we get to the details of what these things mean. But if you're going to go and say there's a device talking to an edge, talking to a cloud, then the question really is like, what are the characteristics of cloud that belong to it? What are mm-hmm. the characteristics of edge that belong to it? And what are the characteristics of a device that belong to it? And um, those list of characteristics need to be different for these things to be different. So, uh, you know, so there's this one angle of, of, of basically device talks to edge, talks to cloud. Right. And, um, and, you know, we know that, you know, the cloud space tends to be, um, you know, commonly referred to as like hyperscale. Mm-hmm. And then I almost always say that the corresponding term for thinking about edge is really hyperlocal. Uh, and, and there's some differences, um, then in almost that local word to it, you know, in that for most stuff that's in the cloud, it's off in the cloud and you don't really need to know where it is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the case of edge computing, um, you need to know where it is, right? So, so literally these same types of concepts we had around, uh, our smartphones are mobile, Mm -hmm. And they have location services on them, and you can build applications that take advantage of those location services. And mobility is an enabling thing. Uh, you have a very similar 
um, um, thing when it comes to edge and that there are mobility concepts around the workloads themselves. Uh, there's a much greater almost diversity of them. Uh, meaning, you know, the back, like the, the, the virtual servers move around too. Right. Right. Uh, and fundamentally you're running stuff on the edge because something needs to be in a precise and accurate location. It can't just quote unquote be off in the cloud. Right. Um, and so when you look at people like FedEx, um, you know, FedEx is a really good example of a business that by its very nature is very distributed and has a lot of locations Mm -hmm. and where you're talking about packages that are mobile. Right. Right. So if you stop and you think, oh yeah, it's all about moving packages that are being moved by people. That's not terribly different than, you know, FedEx package isn't very different from like a mobile device. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, uh, and then, so it makes sense that um, if your whole workloads that you're running tend to be mobile Mm -hmm. and they tend to actually have location requirements, then the question is, as you move into the infrastructure, at what point does your backend continue to be mobile too and have those location requirements? And then when do you start getting to the things where you don't have those location requirements and it doesn't have to be mobile? Uh, And that that in some ways is a a more um, intellectually pure way of thinking about something than... um, you know, is it centralized, decentralized? Is it sort of this? Is it sort of that? You say, mm-hmm. okay, well, why why would we do these things? It's like, well, the reason why I would centralize something is because it doesn't really matter where it runs. I mean, the reason why we would keep something distributed is because it matters where it runs, right? Uh, and uh, and um, the reason why we keep things distributed is because it has to mirror the mobility of what it's talking to. Uh, and, you know, hopefully, you know, people will, uh, you know, listen there because, I, you know, I think it's important to have these types of ways of thinking about technology that are much more long term. You know, so um, like clearly, for example, if somebody bet their entire world on fog computing, it turns mm-hmm. out it's not a long term thing. Right. Uh, if you sit around and say, well, it's all about, you know, 5G is the big, massive innovation platform. It's like, well, but it's going to be about 6G in 2030. So how am I supposed to have a long-term technology strategy around 5G? I can't, right? You know, and so how categorically, how can we sort of go and do that? But I think these concepts that um, devices went from static to mobile and they went from not having location knowledge to having location knowledge, Mm -hmm. And then um, the back ends of these applications, that was not the case. But yeah, no, I think I think in the case of, you know, edge computing, um, you know, there's a couple. One, I, I do categorically think that it is an appropriate term for, you know, this next generation of things that's occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, you know, just, just like how cloud has stuck in that. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it's about a lot of content coming in, uh, around that there are the technical components of computer vision and AI and machine learning and, you know, you're needing, you know, GPUs and that type of thing. Um, but you know, they're all, um, um, you know, the, the overall adoption of it, 
you know, is dependent on different applications, different application architectures. And in some cases, they're also dependent on the development of the device itself. You know, so there's some edge workloads like the network itself. So running 4G, 5G, 6G, 7G, Wi-Fi, 6 networks and that. So running all the network elements would technically be running on an edge. And those fit all the criteria of Mm -hmm. having to run in a specific location and everything else. Yeah. And then this idea of, you know, a lot of video or images or pipelines of data coming in to the system and then what you go do with it, you know, these are all of the sort of pipeline style automation, you know, applications. And those are, those are, you know, as, as different, you know, from web apps as you can like possibly be. And then everything that's in the immersive, pervasive, metaverse space does require compelling devices for those to be possible, right? I mean, if we all had sort of the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible style glasses, then there'd probably be, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? More things yeah. you could go do with it. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you'd expect to see, you know, maps versions on there, you know, facial recognition that tells you the last time you met somebody. There's a whole right. bunch of use cases that would show up if really good devices showed up. But the whole metaverse space, in my opinion, is very dependent on hardware showing up, you know, so this sort of multimodal, multi-device, you know, what that sort of looks like. It's very hardware dependent. Similar thing when you look at autonomous control systems, you know, coordinating those, so, you know, meaning devices that are moving on their own uh, as well. Those are very device dependent, Mm -hmm. you know, in there. And so, you know, holistically, you do want to think that a device connects to an edge, connects to a cloud. There's embedded application environments in each. Clouds are hyperscale. Edges are hyperlocal. And then, you know, you have a, a series of of almost application categories like the network itself or, you know, a pipeline style, you know, where um, they have some dependencies on devices supporting them, but they're not like dramatic dependencies as when you head into really nailing what a pair of glasses would look like Mm -hmm. has a lot of work to do there. You know I mean? You're having a high resolution display you can see through a big miniaturization you know, and then when you head into the idea that these devices have their own mobility, uh, you know, whether it be drones, cars, robotics, you know, or the like, then there's even greater, you know, sort of barrier to entry to those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that, and, you know, it's, it's, it's good to see, you know, p- p- people like FedEx are, it's a good example of a company that truly has edge workloads, <laughs> right? Right. FedEx, FedEx pushing the envelope again. Yeah. Ahead of the curve. Did I ever tell you that I interviewed to get a job at FedEx? You want to hear this story? Not as a driver or anything. Um, There was a, um, this is back, I think late nineties. And I was, I was a A long time ago. I know. I was a consultant. And the way that this worked back then, I I don't know if this still exists this way anymore, but. There would be consulting companies, and really what they were were sort of pla- uh, staff, yeah, I would guess they would be kind of like placement companies in a way, in that they would get you a contract, usually it was like six months or a year, mm-hmm. and then you would you would go and work for some other company on site 
as a reg, almost as if you were a regular employee. The only difference is that instead of getting paid by the company that you were doing the work for, you got paid by the consulting company that placed you there. And mm-hmm. then when the contract ended, a lot of the time the company would want to hire you. But if they didn't, then the consulting company would just try and find you another contract. And so you work sort of paid hourly, but you also got benefits, but those all came through the consulting company. Okay. So I had finished up a, or was coming to finish up a contract. I think I was at a place called MCI Telecom at the time. And <laughs> okay. then they had, um, they had found a new one for me potentially at, at FedEx. Mm. And they wanted me to run, they had this sort of like skunk works project group that they needed a system administrator, network administrator type person, because this kind of group worked outside of the regular constraints of the FedEx as a company. So they were doing weird things and experimental things and different things and like using the internet and stuff like that. Yeah. And so they had to have that because you never know what the internet could do to a company. Like it could, you know, it could, hackers could just get in and or something. So everything was separate. And they had this Mm. cool little network of like cool developers and like systems and, you know, like they were migrating to Solaris from SunOS 413. And I was like, yeah, you know, let me add it, man. Like this is, give me those spark stations. And I interviewed there and then they gave me this really low ball offer. And I'm like, that's a lot. That's actually be like a, you know, like two, not enough. And they said, but, but we're FedEx. And I said, yeah. Like, but everyone wants to work for FedEx. So anyway, that's my FedEx story. Mm. That's it. That's the whole story. That's a, that's a great story. Yeah. Thought I would share that. Yeah. We also had, they were uh, back in the, you know, of course, early Node.js days at uh, Joint. I mean, they were doing a lot of stuff with Node.js and their innovation group and trying different ideas there. You know, who knows? Maybe, um, maybe it would have been me and you working together if I had taken that job. Yeah, could have been. Maybe the whole world would be different. Speaking of the whole world being different, vertical bridge brings the edge closer to the data, Jason. This is what uh, everyone's always wanted. Mm. So I've got a quote for you. We don't believe in the 5G architecture that the edge will be at a tower site. This is we- what uh, Bernard Bor- Borgay is explaining. Mm. He's executive VP of operations and co-founder of vertical bridge. Quote, the edge location will be as close to where the data is generated, he said. Uh, the, and he said okay. that Vertical Bridge is currently working with a few wireless operators, and those operators dictate where they would like the edge location to be. Vertical Bridge then uses its real estate and infrastructure expertise to develop the site and make sure it has fiber connectivity and security, and then enlists the help of its partner, Edge Presence, which builds and operates multi-tenant edge computing centers. Edge Presence then looks for additional tenants for that Edge site and manages the rack space and power consumption for each tenant. Vertical Bridge and Edge Presence are both digital bridge portfolio companies. So it sounds like they go and build the little data centers all around. Uh, yeah. I mean, is that, isn't that that another way to say it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a good example of... Uh, um, the uh, I, I think when people start getting too specific mm-hmm. with things, you know, um, um, you know, like these ideas of near edge, far edge, tower edge, site yeah. edge, device edge, like they start adding a bunch of adjectives in front of edge, it, it misses the the point. Um, edge should just be 
you know, this location specific computing and data. And in fact, what is needed between a device and a cloud is a distributed system where location information and these things is just metadata that you use around some decision making of where you put things and based on what. You, you know what I mean? So uh, we, um, half of what he's saying makes sense. The other half has a bunch of adjectives in it that I don't think add or help simplify things. Mm-hmm. Google has unveiled a new distributed cloud. Uh, this is an offering of hardware and software that it says can extend its cloud infrastructure into the customer's data centers and out to the edge of the network. Kind of interesting. This distributed cloud builds on Google's cloud computing business. It says here in the article that they're chasing Microsoft and AWS in the public hybrid and private cloud space. And so they say that distributed cloud products, they're built on its Anthos system, which is meant to simplify the management of hardware and virtual machines in Google Cloud, on-premise hardware, virtual machines, and rival clouds and edge devices where machine learning takes place. Mm. They're calling it planet-scale infrastructure. Nice. <laughs> what are you laughing at? I mean, it's uh, it's bold. It's a bo- planet-scale I mean, it's yeah, but I mean, Google. Google no, I probably, mean that they're they're probably doing that. It's just I mean, it's Google, pretty cool. Google. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, they, it's it's fair to say they probably have the best example of planet scale infrastructure themselves, right? Using I mean, Google's Google. distributed cloud, customers can migrate or modernize applications and process data locally with Google Cloud services, including databases, machine learning, data analytics, mm-hmm. and container management. Some interesting uh, data here. Spending on cloud computing was up 30% this year in the first quarter of 2021, hitting $41.8 billion. This is according to analyst firm Catalyst. AWS leading with a 32% share of spending, followed by Microsoft Azure at 19%, Google Cloud 7%. I, everybody that I know mm. is using or switching to Google Cloud right now from AWS. I don't know. Um, is that true? Yes, the people that I know that have been that have a large enough infrastructure, um, yes, AWS still seems to be leading. When I talk to my developer friends, people who are doing small to mid-sized businesses, yeah. and who are looking for, you know, we need to store stuff in the cloud. Whether it's like someone uploaded an avatar, well, the basic stuff like that. Like everyone goes to AWS for that. But I think uh, enterprise maybe is a bit different. Um, do you think we will see the shares that AWS has of that industry going, you know, getting smaller shrinking while Google cloud or Microsoft Azure grows? I mean, one is, I, I think, you know, the, the, and cloud's a good example is the analysis has always been, um, I think it depends on, on the, pers- the, the sort of perspective you take, like which angle do you come from? You know, in a lot of ways, we can come from the angle of Amazon, Microsoft, Google, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, 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 which I'm not too current. If if I had to guess, um, Microsoft, you know, out of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Microsoft probably has the most complete enterprise account and channel coverage. Mm-hmm. And if you go and survey. 
you know, all the companies in the world and ask, you know, who's a strategic software vendor to you? Microsoft probably comes out more often and higher than Amazon or Google does, right? Mm -hmm. And why do you think that is? I mean, is it because of their ex years and years of enterprise integrations? Is it because power, of their sales PowerPoint, team? Excel, right? Outlook, right? Business tools. I mean, Go to the place yeah, that all, makes the business all. tools. Yeah, I think it's you know Windows. So, um, and uh, and so you know, there's sort of this. The activity within Microsoft's a bit different than Amazon and Google, right? Mm -hmm. You know, meaning their whole thing is uh, how do you go to you know how do you start distinguishing between people that consider you a strategic vendor and people that don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, for the ones that are within there, how do you go in and tell a compelling cloud story that keeps them, you know, keeps them from going to an Amazon or Google, or they may go pilot something there, but they bring into production on you or, you know, something like, but you're like keeping them. Um, and, um, and then, cause you know, if you almost look at the windows world, you know, it was something like half the workloads were on windows, half the workloads were not on windows. Um, and, um, so, you know, Microsoft got its thing. Now, now if I had to guess, Amazon's probably because of, they've been doing it long enough is probably considered, you know, not as strategic a vendor as Microsoft, but maybe more than Google, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, in that, um, and so I think it's, you know, it's, it's coming, come down to those types of elements, um. But but I think it's also, you know, a big a big part of it is, I mean, you know how when people go and do a given project on this, you know, nowadays you end up with a bunch of SaaS and higher level API services from whoever it makes sense to go do it, right? Yep. You know, so you end up with a little bit of Datadog, a little bit of PagerDuty, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit of Twilio, a little mm -hmm. bit of this, a little bit of that. Um. And you know that's 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 basically unknown. So I th so I think the the challenge always around these is, um, the Amazon versus Microsoft versus Google and how those companies are and the relationships that they have and what they're sort of going and driving. You know, they're Amazon's doing their thing, Microsoft's doing their thing, Google's doing their thing. They're they're competing. Yeah. But these aren't exactly the same companies in exactly the same right. space with exactly right. the same offering, right? You get right. what I mean? It's it's, it's not, not a it's not a Honda versus Toyota situation. Not ex yeah, it's a little more complex than that, in in, in my opinion. Yeah. And then the thing that's always been amusing to me, even in the early days of cloud, is people act as if the customer base isn't growing and expanding. Like it's somehow it's just these static enterprise apps that just sit there. And the question is, when do we move our payroll app over? You know, which has never been the case. Meaning, literally everything that's on the cloud now, I can almost guarantee, didn't exist as a as a as a software system fifteen years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's constantly new things being done, things being expanded, things being refactored, things being. There's this constant sort of activity that's going on. You know, in that, um, and you know, the majority is if you can think of. Um, if the whole digital transformation that's occurring out in every company is how do you start taking advantage of data and software to run a better business? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there's a, there's a certain like diversity in that effort, 
and there's a certain dynamism in that entire market, you know, that it's, uh, it can be, it can be tough to say exactly how it's going to go. Um, you know, and that, uh, it's going to keep on growing and it's going to be more and more stuff. And, you know, the market shares for Amazon, Microsoft, Google are going to shake out the way they're going to shake out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see. <laughs> yeah. One thing um, I th- also that was interesting, uh, Google Distributed Cloud Hosted does not require connectivity to Google Cloud at any time to manage infrastructure, services, APIs, or tooling. Yeah, that, that's smart because uh, I think in the case of like uh, Amazon's equivalent, it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in particular, when it comes to edge networking traffic, you know, my recollection is that everything goes back to sort of regional load balancers and stuff inside of Amazon, which sort of negates having an edge site actually, yeah. you know, from mm-hmm. at least from a networking, uh, you know, performance perspective. Uh, so, um, so that's good. I mean, they're, they're starting to, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, I often tell people that, you know, AWS's approach feels a lot like Apple and iOS's approach mm-hmm. in the industry and Google feels a lot like Android. Um, and you know, Microsoft feels like windows. <laughs> so right. it's, yeah. so it's a, it's a little bit of, of, you know, um, Similar type of very vertically integrated, very opinionated. You know, do you go a little bit flexible? Do you go somewhere in between? Um, and uh, it makes sense for them to uh, tell an you know an Android flexibility, broader industry support type story out of Google. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. It's good they finally launched something in the space. A new report by CCS Insight, which is sponsored by Interdigital, gives a downbeat assessment of Open RAN's chances of making a big industry impact in the near to medium term. The report's conclusion is hardly a surprise, given its title, Open RAN, The Long Journey from Supporting Act to Lead Role. Uh, but here's what they say. Open RAN remains at an early stage of development and given the time needed to evolve into a more integrated ecosystem of solutions will probably play no more than a supporting role in global 5G deployments. This is Kester Mann, Director of Consumer and Connectivity at CCS Insight and the person who wrote the report. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, there's always... The question in any industry is whether you're the critic or the chef. (laughs) So... What do you think of that? Do you think that Open RAN is ready? Do you think it? I think will it's a little a bit of the conversation between you have these people in the. So you know, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to how one decides to market these things, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So Open RAN, you know, the challenge is, um, you know, maybe, maybe in the name Open RAN, it's not just about open source and open interfaces and that that type of thing. There's a, there are certain concepts within Open RAN that are valid around the choice of converging different hardware elements into a common thing, you know, having stuff that used to be on a board now be in a chip, uh, you know, sitting there and saying like, well, we we'll, we'll have a cell side router, let's get rid of that, move it to onboard type functionality, they don't really care. Uh, you know, let's go ahead and take um, a software approach where the software can sort of run anywhere. I mean, you know, there's, there's a, a number of, concepts in the open RAN movement that are really valid things for the operators to do. You know what I mean? Uh, and um, I don't know what the hell the problem is exactly, you know, in the sense of 
there's not a lot of vendors in the space, okay? So, uh, meaning it's Nokia, Ericsson, Huawei, a couple sort of smaller ones. Um, so, you know, it's, it's the, the, the mobile industry has a very funny habit of kicking off initiatives like Open RAN, where um, I don't know if it's like a passive aggressive market conversation. Like, why don't you just talk to your suppliers? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just tell them what you want. Like, we want things that look like this. Uh, and it's going to be like here, and we don't like want that anymore. We want it like this, um, and uh, and um, um, there's that. You know, are you trying to solve supplier diversity? Like you're upset that it's gone down to three incumbents, and you really want like a choice between twelve things again. Um, you know, is it operators going and wanting to do things more themselves? Right. Um. And, uh, you know, I think if you wanted to take the most optimistic way of viewing the open RAN space, you know, the optimistic view there is there's a collection of operators um, that range from some greenfield stuff like Rocketin and Dish and some other things. Um, There's a collection of operators that are trying to tell the vendor community, the development community, we want to develop some of these things too. Um, we want to have an open conversation about, you know, approaches and that type of thing. And we're trying to like accomplish the following stuff. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you have traditional suppliers that may or may not feel disrupted by this. And then there's a bit of things like, well, you know, we could develop these things for you and sort of here and there. It's a very... Um, um, I don't know, there's a certain like streak of dysfunction that's in there. And if you look at what somebody in like this, this report goes through, uh, you know, it's probably just, um, it just sounds like it's just pointing out the dysfunctional parts of it and then just acting like the dysfunction is going to rule at the end of the day. But that's fine. I mean, um, I think the key the key comes down to you know some of the greenfield stuff like what they're doing in Dish and Rocketin is you know if those guys continue to compete and do sort of everything else well mm-hmm. and then there's lessons to learn there and if the form that they're relaying those other lessons to people is quote unquote open RAM uh, then you know I guess fine but but we'll see. The technology is unproven at scale. There are questions over interoperability, pricing, and security. Momentum is undeniable, but it may be several years before we see a tangible impact on the market. Yeah, again, um, you know, Ericsson, Huawei, Nokia. I mean, Nokia says they're they're with it, you know, but you know, you can almost argue that Nokia is saying that because their roadmap and capabilities are the least, uh, you know, compared to the other ones. I mean. This is one of these spaces where, um, you know, the Ericsson, Nokia, Huawei's of the world uh, are being messed with by their customers, sort of how they think about it. Uh, and um, But at the same time, they're not necessarily listening to what the customers are saying. And there's not necessarily a big understanding of, well, what does it mean for an R&D organization to drive a certain roadmap and drive certain efficiencies and drive certain sort of things? Uh, relative to 
how network rollouts need to occur. You know, if you look at things like um, somebody goes and gets a Spectrum, you know, bid in there, like say, like how Rocketon probably did in Japan, they have six months, nine months, 18 months to put things in place. And then when it's in place, it may be in tens of thousands of sites. And now that's your new legacy and you own that. Um, if they want to innovate on how things are done during that rollout in that 18 month time window, um, that's vastly faster than a typical like roadmap deliverable from an Ericsson. Right. <laughs> so you're not going to be able to go to an existing vendor like that and say, well, we want to take like this type of approach, but we need it from you in six months and nine months. You know, we need it sort of here, we need it supported like this, you know, like here. Um, that can be a difficult thing to do for just a customer. Um, and, uh, you know, so, um, so I think <clears throat> when, when people say stuff like open RAN is going to be a big failure and it's a big mess, they're correct. When people say open RAN is going to be a massive success and really sort of change the industry, uh, they're also correct. <laughs> and it's a sign that, um, taking the adjective open and putting in front of RAN isn't really the best summary of the issues. Right. Makes sense. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, Orange has announced new business capabilities which have enabled it to strengthen its presence. This is more of a press release, but its presence as a leading telecommunications company in Europe, the tech giant has launched Totem. It's a mm -hmm. European Tower Co which will allow it to derive value from its passive mobile infrastructure. The company's also announced its participation in the 5G Croco project. Croco! <laughs> contributing to the consolidation of Europe's leading role in 5G technology. Yeah, I mean, the general trend is, um, you know, running a consumer-facing device selling business with a retail presence. Um, it makes sense for them to not necessarily own a bunch of their stores. And then when you start heading on the other end of the infrastructure, it makes sense for them to not necessarily financially package up a lot of their towers and real estate together with other elements, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so we see here, it's, it's a very, very common practice for many operators to start separating their retail operations and their wholesale operations uh, often in the separate companies with different financial structures, different expectations, maybe separately traded, you know, maybe owned differently. Mm -hmm. It also makes a lot of sense for them to then take the real estate elements of that and fold that up into other stuff. Um, the tower company for Orange is going to have certain access to debt capabilities. It's going to have an OPEX. It's exceptionally low. As it says, it's got 170 employees. Right. You know, which is not, not huge. you know, not a hundred thousand employees working right. in that. Um, you know, so you sit and you say, oh, well, all of a sudden you have a company that's got 170 employees. It owns $80 billion in assets, say, you know, and, uh, you know, it's got a debt load of this and pays off this cash flow on that. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty intelligent way to, um, uh, if you break out your tower assets, you end up in a, in a, in a better leveraged position financially than you would otherwise so the expectation is that i think people will start seeing anyone who's got tower assets those tower assets will either go to a tower company or come out as 
you know, a, you know, a spin out like this. DT did this. Telefonica did this. Now Orange is doing this to make sense. You see the other separations between wholesale, retail, you know, type networks. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, it is um, um, dividing the assets up in a way that you're maximizing what the financial position is for each and your financial capabilities. That's really what it is. So. Kindrel, which is, um, well, or was IBM's managed infrastructure services where you, unit. Where, where do you think that name came from? K-Y-N-D-R-Y-L. Kindrel. I don't know. I kind of like it. It's the first uh, time that I've heard of it. But it's an um, officially an independent company now. But talk yeah, about, do you, yeah, you were talking about a couple hundred employees. This starts out with 90,000 employees, $19 billion in annual revenue. Operations in over 60 countries and a customer so base that's 75% Drill, of DR, DRYL, by the way, yeah, is one of the seven known kingdoms of Etheria. Oh, yeah? <laughs> it's apparently a uh, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. So apparently DRYL is one of the uh, kingdoms in uh, the She-Ra and Princesses of Power series of stuff. It's ruled by Princess Entrapta, with a castle fortress known as Crypto Castle. <laughs> now, you, you just got to just wonder, uh, you know, where these names come from. Yeah. Um, I wonder if, uh, cause have you ever been part of like a uh, corporate renaming experiment where they go and do these? Uh, yes, only, only like one time though, but yeah. I mean, they, uh, you know, they always go and it's like, well, you know, should we do Latin? Should we do Nordic? Should we do this? Should we do that? I mean, they're looking for the combination of things that, you know, end up, turns out nobody's got the domain name and you sort of go here and there. And I mean, how many of these companies are just named what they are because the domain name was available? uh, That's definitely one of the criteria. You know, know, no one spelled anything with this many Y's in it. So we'll use that. We don't have to buy it. Oh my God. You see the logo they did for Kindrel? Let me look at that. It's pixelated on the fucking website. Kindrel. Let's see. K-Y-N-D-R-Y-L.com. Yeah. yeah. Look at that logo. You see that logo? I see what you're talking about. It looks all right. It's pixelated. I'll just reload it. It looks good here. Now. Now. Which one? The one in upper left? It looks beautiful. Orange. I like the orange. I don't love it. Oh, maybe it's the scale. It's literally just, a, what font do you think that is? No, I think it's, um, I don't know. I don't like the R or the D. I don't really like the font. The more I look I at like this, the, the font less at I all. like it. Yeah, the less I like it. You look, I mean, just look at it. Yeah. I mean, they don't the, care. The, they, can the, make, the they can make it look like anything they wanted. They've got, you know. Yeah, but what, what kind of font is that? 90,000 employees, 19 billion in annual revenue. And that's, the, that's, they don't care about the font. Yeah, it just seems rather uh, um, happenstance, you know what I mean? Their goal is to modernize customer infrastructure. But, you know, the moral story is IBM's, IBM's breaking up just like GE is. You saw well, the and it makes GE's sense if breaking they can, up into I three mean, companies as well. This becomes a 90,000 employee <laughs> company. Um, that's huge. And, but it, they're saying in the article, and this also makes sense is that now they can partner with other major tech companies, cloud hyperscalers, wow. Google, Microsoft, they couldn't have done that as easily if they were IBM. How many, but how many employees are now left in IBM? Do you know? Hmm. 
I mean, because uh, I think they had gone down. I mean, IBM's was landing like, I guess probably. It says 345,900 employees in 2020. They were still like 350,000 employees, 300,000 employees. So this is like one third of their employees and like one third, a little less than one third of their revenue. So it's that big, because IBM used to be like three large business units or that type of thing. So I guess they took uh, this whole thing and spun it out as its own bit. Yeah, it's fun. I can um, tell you're pretty excited about it. I mean, um, uh, so, I mean, it's a little, I mean, like Martin Schroeder, who's the chairman and CEO for this, mm-hmm. um, used to be the CFO at IBM. Um, and then uh, we did, you know, I mean, not not to sound, it's going to sound funny, but I was at, uh, there's this annual event that Alan Patrickoff would do at his house at the Hamptons um, <laughs> in the summer. And I've gone to that a few, several years in a row. Uh, and it's in his backyard and it's nice and that kind of thing. Uh, and I think the last time I went was maybe um, the summer of 2019 because, of course, the summer of 2020 was canceled. Yes. Um, and I'm trying to remember if it was the summer of 2018 or 2000. I think it was 2018. I don't think anybody can tell the difference between 2019 and 2020. It's just a big block. Well, June of 2019 was normal. June of 2020 was pandemic. I mean, yeah. it was like three months into the pandemic. Yeah. But so, because I think, because Martin was the... Um, um, Martin was the uh, the CFO from like 2013 or 14 to 2017. So I think it was, yeah, it was the year after he stopped being the CFO. So summer 2018. And um, uh, we had uh, common friends that were there as well. And uh, his wife is Australian. Very nice lady. Um, and um, uh, it seemed to me that they were actively discussing doing this all the way back in 2018. Hmm. So, you know, this is the kind of, um, so it makes, if you think about it, it makes sense that you had a guy who was um, considered to be a good CFO of IBM, who then 2017 moves into being quote unquote, the president, you know, of that. Right. Um, And I think it was all the way back when he was the CFO that there was these sort of scenarios of, how do we sort of start separating these up and that kind of thing? And then it's pretty clear that um, um, they he went and did it. <laughs> and they're letting him be the CEO of it and everything. That's cool. I mean, good for him. Um, it just reminds me that I should uh, send him a note of congratulations. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Sounds good. You're happy. Okay, our last one. Well, I mean, it makes it's one of these things where um, companies do have to do things that make sense for that company, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I imagine that for the customers of this entity, it's it's probably better, you know. Yeah. So if it's a better financial story for the spin out, and it's a better financial situation for an IBM. And it's better for the shareholders, and it sounds like um, that's probably the 
the case here. Um, I mean, it's, um, um, if you worked there, you might be concerned because, you know, a lot of the messaging usually is we're going to be flatter and faster and more focused and, you know, that, that kind of thing, which is usually, uh, talk for, um, um, you know, laying off people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. All right, our last story. For the first time in the world, South Korean researchers have developed and demonstrated a smart networking platform that uses edge computing technology converged with artificial intelligence. The platform can recognize faces and situations that take place around edge nodes to take appropriate actions and request emergency service or police support. There's a couple paragraphs where they explain what edge computing is. Uh, they say the um, Electronics and Telecommunications Research Institute, or ETRI, said in a statement on November 2nd that its research team developed and demonstrated AI-based smart edge networking technology. The smart edge network was demonstrated using the Korea Advanced Research Network, a super-fast nationwide internet backbone network especially designed to test future network technologies. And uh, basically, it, it allows this AI to monitor situations and collect and distribute data before sending it to the main server. And only small-sized AI data is transferred between devices using the Internet of Things. Large-sized data is sent through cloud servers that have high risks of being hacked. So the new technology mm-hmm. acts as links that connect AI and networks in order to securely and effectively transfer and process data using edge servers. Mm. And, uh, and so basically they did this in a simulated environment, but the system's AI monitored its environment near the local server to selectively detect and record emergency situations using a camera. And then the collected data was sent to the main server. And they said it can be paired up with stuff like facial recognition technology so that it could find a missing person in a crowd or detect a person smoking inside a no smoking zone, you know, and the authorities could descend upon them. Cool. It's I mean, it sounds pretty interesting. I, I feel like every single one of these things, any new technology that's announced, just gets us closer to Minority Report. You think so? Yeah. You don't? Yeah, no. I mean, you know, when it's like researchers say that you know you do this and detect whether a person's smoking or no smoking sound. I mean, it's one of those. Um, I could see why it would uh, trigger. Americans that live in Texas a particular way. <clears throat> but please. I don't mind that stuff. I mean, I'm in Austin. It's a different kind of Texas. I understand. But I don't, understand. don't, Jason, don't be one of those people that says Austin's the only good part of Texas. That's not true. There's a lot of great, great places here. I don't actually. I, I mean, don't you see the Dallas or just as good, if not better? I don't know about that. Just don't get carried away. <laughs> I've been all over Texas. I got no problem with Texas. Yeah. When are you coming yeah. back? Uh, I mean, I think when uh, Texas is part of the national power grid and I feel secure about it. That's so never. <laughs> it's. Uh, uh, you, I mean, so you're saying you, hold on, hold on. You're saying you won't visit Texas because our power grid is not connected to the rest of the country's power grid. Oh my God, yeah. It's, it's, it's so you so won't concerning. visit. No, I'll come and visit. Okay. Right. Yeah, I mean. And that's I an get, interesting reason to not visit a place. Um, I mean, there's got to be a limit to going it alone, right? 
I mean, I mean, you're meaning. <laughs> no, I'm yes, just. Uh, I find. Uh, um. You know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a I mean, so just me philosophically, I'm a big believer in the scientific method and the scientific process, and I do actually believe that people are not entitled to their own opinion. I actually believe I think people should strive to understand facts, right? And then they're, they're entitled to hypothesize around things and experiment with the goal of arriving to a truth. So I, I do think that truth is and something factual is something that you can strive for and work towards and so on. And the best and the best available methodology to do that is a very well done scientific methodology for the determination of evidence supported facts and truth and there's a certain like humility and discovery process that goes along with you know what what's the data telling us and are we doing a good job doing it and you know all of that so you know so every now and then when i tell people i i believe in the scientific process then you know so if i ever hear a counter to that it's usually examples of the process not done well <laughs> you know <clears throat> but but um and so um um if people have uh a lack of an education in science and the scientific process and sort of what that means and i think and also that sort of mentality um uh i trust those people less so that's sort of one big thing for me like i, I believe in science and i believe in that it is possible to have evidence and data backed facts. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time to have the humility that it may be superseded at some point in the future by another experiment and another exposure of, of phenomena and so on like that. And then we'll, 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 we'll deal with that when we get there and, uh, people should, and I, I get a bit disturbed around the lack of factual conversations in many places. Um, and um, within the state of Texas, I find a very large gradient of people's adherence to that core philosophy of mine mm-hmm. around the nature of facts. Uh, the second one is that um, 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 I think that happiness and freedom and safety is a fundamental, like, human goal like yeah. we all want to be safe yeah we all want to be uh quote unquote free you know of that um and i i think that sometimes um freedom and safety requires more government to occur and there's sometimes when it requires less government to occur it just depends <laughs> you know it's i mean it's one of these funny things like um um you know, wild west towns that had no police force mm-hmm. uh, and everybody had guns had some of the highest historical murder rates right. ever. <laughs> so, you know, everybody having a gun and not having a centralized government doesn't necessarily mean that a bunch of men that are armed behave well with each other. True. It's not guaranteed. No. Nope you know, sort of in that, but it plugs very clearly into another thing that I don't like, which is I hate extremists. 
I just don't like extremism of any type. Um, you know what I mean? I don't like right-wing extremists. I don't like left-wing extremists. I don't like whatever sort of way you go and divide it. But this, this idea of, um, you know, somehow what a politician has said somewhere in the world is somehow this like extremely urgent thing that I should scream at my neighbor about. <laughs> it's just not, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and um, I don't like Christian extremists. I don't like Islamic extremists. I don't like any type of religious extremist. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I don't like people that take arbitrary non-factual um, categories like race and then go and are a an extremist or a supremacist around that, you know, because it bumps into sort of the normal thing of can we actually have a scientific, factual sort of discovery of sort of like what is truth? We have some humility around what we know or we don't know, but what we do know is that safety, us being safe, our families being safe, is is very important, you know, of that, um, and. Um, um, we're gonna we're gonna go and do there. And then, of course, us having you know freedom and stuff like that's very important. But we have responsibilities as well, you know. So, um, um, but yeah. And so, you know, it's. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know about you, but it's it's one of these these things where there seems to be um, a type of. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it seems like a lot of the issues that are out there, if people just sort of paused for a minute and said, why, why am I being an extremist about this? And is what I believe even factual or not? Um, would, would go a pretty far away, in my opinion. So, um, and people tend to be geographically co-located in their beliefs. <clears throat> Oh, definitely. That's very true. Um, you know, and, and and you know what's really amusing too is I, I don't know about you. I mean, do you like? Um, I just uh, I find it very strange when people go into Facebook or Reddit or then they go into like online things mm-hmm. and then start getting emotional about what they've gone and read online. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I that's just that's just modern internet. People are, are are ready to very very ready to be upset and be offended about things that, that they find on the internet. And um which is it's it's a phenomenon. It's strange, right? You know there's that old uh comic strip cartoon of of the guy sitting at his computer and he's like someone someone is wrong on the internet. They have to go do something about it. And, um, you know, I think people are always have different opinions and have always been wrong. And it's now we just get to hear those thoughts and opinions, whereas before we didn't. And, that is um, true. Staying that off true. of staying off of social media. You know, I, w- I just commented to a friend about this. Um, you know, if you're if you're on Twitter. I, I actually, one of the ways that I uh, stopped using social media, especially Twitter, quite as much as I was, not that it ever reached a point where I thought of it as a problem, but I definitely 
you know, I felt like I was by, by, I think spending any time on social media is potentially a problem. So for me, it was like, well, I don't, I want to mitigate that. So I deleted all of the Twitter apps that I had. And when I want to go to Twitter, I go to twitter.com in a browser. And that Mm. experience is so unpleasant. (laughs) It is. That it makes me, it makes me not want to be there very much. It, uh, it's so funny you say that because I mean, I, I, uh, Nothing I against use, the people. I, I have the, friends at Twitter, so I don't. You know, oh yeah, no, I, them, I, I know people have been working on that that terrible user experience <laughs> for many, many, many yeah. years. Yeah. Um, and um, it is. Uh, I mean, I, I've always used Echo Phone that mm-hmm. app. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that thing. It has been um, literally the only way that I've used Twitter since it transitioned away from being text message based. Like the app was pretty early and it has stayed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is, I mean, cause I, I've, I mean, you and I both, I mean, I've been on Twitter since the fucking hackathon. I mean, it's been, I think I've been on since October 2006 or 2005. I mean, it's been like forever, you know what I mean? Um, but it was probably like when things started ramping up, um, I mean, it was probably 2009, when I said, and you know what it was, because it was, you know, when Google came up with Google One or Google, not Google One, it was Google, uh, Google Plus. Yes, I do. Uh, and everyone, everyone we knew, particularly in the technology space, all of a sudden is piling onto Google Plus, right? I found the process of, because you know, I had some stuff on, you know, I was doing, I was regularly using Twitter and there's a little bit of stuff on Facebook. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course we were, Doing doing both of those guys as customers and trying to do you know, stuff and and all that and then uh, um, I found the process of engaging with Google Plus and accepting this and that and putting people in the different circles to like be exhausting. Um, yeah, I was just like, oh my god, another like, what's the why? You know, uh, and um, you know, I, th- I think the big light bulb had go off in sort of 2009 was for me personally um like i wanted the internet to stay this thing that i would if if, if to me if the internet was um you know a couple websites done by you because you've always done nice stuff thanks but you know if the internet like i could have i could have and you and you look at and uh you take something that looks like a you know in a list apart because we'll pull a list apart. List apart has always been a great looking yeah. property, and oh, you've yeah. done a lot of work around around that too, right? Yeah. But it's a good example of high quality content in a niche area that, in that delivery mechanism, you're able to get that type of high quality content that would have never made sense to be in a magazine before, right? You know, like it would never made sense for the like in a list apart to be in a magazine, no. Yeah, it's always been a beautifully designed, good topography, good content like site, right? You know what I mean? It's been there for a long time now, right? I mean, list of parts got, got to be getting to be almost twenty years old, right? I think so. Yeah. If the whole internet was basically like the New Yorker, the Atlantic, a list of part, like ten or twelve of those things, the Financial Times that like that I regularly read, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. I don't need to read comments. 
I don't need to comment on things. Right. I don't need to engage with other people. It's just this whole like, oh, well, now I can read things that economically don't make sense to be in a book or a magazine. Right. You know, or there's some timeliness around it, other sort of this. But then the whole explosion of giving everybody a megaphone. Yeah. I was like, oh, God. So, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I'd say 2010, uh, I sort of started the process of not really doing anything interactive on social media, meaning I'd still occasionally consume things and read stuff and oh, so-and-so got married. And then by 2013, I was like off it entirely. I, mean, right. I think it was in like 12 or 13 where I literally shut down my Facebook account and everything. And, um, and you know, it's, pro it's probably eight years ago. It was the last time I tweeted something that I wrote, wrote, mm -hmm. you know, versus like, you know, retweeting Retweet, something sure. for a company or yeah. that type of thing. Uh, and then we had the opportunity, you know, in the very beginning of 2014 to move to Sweden, which we did. Um, and, uh, you know, when I moved to Sweden, um, you know, MJ and I are, our two daughters were, you know, essentially two and a half and five. Um, and, uh, it was just this like really nice five years of, getting up, going to work, engaged at work, you know, doing things there, driving stuff there, working with the team, and then being there with, you know, two-and-a-half-year-old and a, a five-year-old and what that sort of looked like and getting out in the snow and skiing and ice skating and doing some stuff. And, and um, God, you know, by, you know, 2000, but within like two, three years of doing that, like I, I'm – you know, like I'm so detoxed from social media. Yeah. It's not even funny. Right. Like, I mean, I don't, <clears throat> I don't look at ads. I don't engage with ads. I never look at comments. I don't like, you know, do stuff. Uh, and, um, um, you know, things like, have you seen like masterclass.com? Of course. Gr great example of like well done content you know, in certain areas where you can sort of pick and choose what you sort of want to go to do. I think things like masterclass.com, I'm like, ah, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, again, you know, stuff like a list apart, you know, it's in that sort of area. Uh, you know, I, I like finding those little pockets that are out there where people want to go and do those pockets. You, you see a lot of this in the podcasting space. Um, I think as, as my wife likes to point out, you know, like I listen to, <laughs> like I listen to every Joe Rogan podcast. I think it's a great podcast, mm -hmm. you know, for the format it is and that kind of thing. Um, and, um, and, um, um, you know, I don't necessarily agree with everything that's on there, but you know, it is what it is, but it's still, you know, uh, interesting things. And then there's, um, a few of them like, uh, Freakonomics just did this medical version of it, like Freakonomics MD. And he's keeping those podcasts down to like 15, 20 minutes. That's pretty impressive. You know, yeah, so there's a little bit of, of uh, you know, if I'm training in the gym, 
you know, I might go and just have the Joe Rogan stuff playing in the background while it's sort of going on, like listening to it because it's, it's longer and I'm typically in there for, you know, two hours, you know, sort of a time, but then it's nice to get these other little tidbits and it's nice to sort of pick and choose that sort of content. But right. um, I'd say that, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, 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 I probably have a, a, a content consumption and social media practice. It's really no different than somebody that lived in the 19th century. <laughs> and I'm happy. Yeah, I don't have a lot of drama in my life as a consequence. I mean, people seem to have so much drama in this shit. Right? You know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. So, like when Trump was president, it was about his tweets all the time. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Who wants to, oh, doesn't, like, don't people get, you know what, people must, people get addicted to it. It's a little bit where, you know, the thing that, um, you know, one of the things that irritates me about the way the internet's gone over the last 20 years, mm-hmm. and particularly as you and I have been professionally involved in that, that period of time and the whole thing. Oh, yeah. is just how much of monetization there's been around enforcing negative aspects of human psychology and human social psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, and And it's one of these things where um, you look at these anti-vax movements, you look at these things, you look at QAnon, you look at all these stuff that's out there, whether it be right wing, left wing, sort of anything else, there's always some asshole monetizing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's always some guy monetizing it. Yeah. They're monetizing it. Mm-hmm. You're buying guides from them. You're buying t-shirts from them. You're buying merch. You know, you're buying, you know, sort of here and there. You're clicking on their video. You're looking at that, like something that's being monetized. You know, and so you sit around and you're like, okay, well, fundamentally, why is this asshole run this QAnon thing? He's making three and a half million dollars a year running a QAnon sure. website. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if yes. it was about recipes, <laughs> it would all be like, oh, great job with the recipe <laughs> right. site, dude. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. You know, if you're doing, if you're, if you're clearing three to five million dollars a year with your little podcast, you'd be like, look at me, man. That's fantastic. Right. But then you make it about something crazy. And then you say, well, why is that? Well, because it plugs into, you know, a certain type of person that doesn't like this. And, and it's one of these, you know, there's this, there's this opportunistic dishonesty to it that I just find it's, it's that, it's that part of it, taking advantage of other people, um, by plugging into a part of human psychology that you really shouldn't be amplifying or encouraging and then like monetizing that. And that even at the core of a Facebook, that's why I just find so goddamn offensive. Ugh. This won't do it. Well, let's wrap it up, Jason. I think we've uh... <laughs> gone on a long tangent. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you, sir. I uh, appreciate the time we get together. And, Me um, too. And it's Friday. It I hope is this. Friday. Uh, yeah. So, so let's let's thing. end. Yeah, let's end it. Done. Done. All right. See you next week, Jason. See you then.